Hey everyone, welcome back to the second episode in our three-episode series with Jasmine Fripp, the passionate Black music educator. Last time we learned about how Jasmine became interested in teaching music in predominantly Black and Brown spaces, and we began to talk about the posts she wrote on Facebook that took off, inspiring thousands of teachers to reevaluate their practice. This time around, Jasmine and I speak more about that post before we dive into talking about other subjects. I hope you are able to read that post from Facebook, which we also put up on our episode page and the podcast Facebook page. You can also find it on the I Am A Choir Director page on Facebook. Let's listen into part two. So with the post, just to kind of follow up on that, was there ever, can I tell you something as a person, no joke, who went through months of people battling, right? That post was unique. It had almost none of that. Like, I've never seen a post so universally loved. Is there anything you wish you would have added, taken out, changed, or are you just happy with how, how it landed? Um, the one thing I would have changed or basically added to, um, I would have said, no, I'm not saying if you're white, don't sing, don't arrange, don't teach our music. Right. Like, I felt, but I felt like the people who did read it and they did look into it, like they understood exactly what I was yeah. saying. Like you, look, like if you look really closely, one, I was promoting black business mm-hmm. because so many times throughout our history, Mer- America, European, all of it, like black music is stolen right. and arranged appropriated. and all appropriated mm-hmm. for the most part. And we don't get a dime. Yep. Or all we, the time, we do get paid all the time, yeah. and when we do get paid, it's for pennies. Mm-hmm. And I, I was saying, basically, use what you have. Just because you're white doesn't mean you're wrong. If you know how to approach music with the correct ar- articulation, with the correct authenticity, even if you're trying to teach your kids that, yeah. do it. Right. Just do it. You and like I, I said, I prefer to have a black arranger for spirituals and gospels and concert music and some other subgenres under the black mm. umbrella of music because I feel like black people not only will they have like a slightly better idea because prop their ancestors Yeah they're the experts. Like their their <laughs> grandparents are the ones who lived through it. Right. But at the same time, I, I said I prefer black people because they're gonna be a tad bit more sensitive sure. to the culture. Yeah. I mean, it makes perfect sense. I don't know yeah. why anybody would argue it. But I think sometimes when we, as people, are we are suffering with some kind of problem and somebody calls it out, you know, mm-hmm. the defensive mechanism is to point away. You know, I'm going to deflect this laser blast. And so instead of saying, oh, my gosh, it is me, you know, or am I doing that? It's just like, how mm-hmm. dare you tell me not to do this and that's not even what you were saying and yeah, so not at all if anything the one thing that i felt god laid on my heart because i i it's i'm i'm still working on it jesus ain't through it yet <laughs> right thank god <laughs> because i can come off at times as very um tactless i guess in a sense like i don't like I don't choose my words properly. Wow. Uh, Many people are like that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, 
I have a bad habit of doing that. And I, that's something I'm working on daily, like just even in my personal life. But it's like I, I made that post with so much intention and I chose to be very solutions oriented. Yeah. And I try to do that with everything. Like if I'm saying something is wrong and you're not doing something right or like you're doing a bad job of this, which I wasn't saying in my post. I wasn't sure. saying that all white teachers are doing a terrible job. No, because a lot of these white teachers are killing it. Right. Um, but I'm saying here's a solution on top of me saying I have some constructive criticism yeah. to give. No, I mean, there was I can't I don't think any argument about against what you said and how you said it exists. It had just the right measure of kind of thoughtfulness and power, you know, and it it was what people needed to hear. And we're not all ready at the same time, you know, mm-hmm. for, for change and growth. I know I'm not. And uh, I, I think that you hit people where they live because you were saying the truth in love and you had the generosity to offer solutions you know mm-hmm. and i want to ask you about that because i wrote to you and i said you know white people in particular we have a problem asking um and of course uh, side note i don't speak for all white people <laughs> um uh our friends and colleagues who are black to help us understand things concerning racism, concerning black genres of music. Uh, We don't want to lay this unnecessary burden uh, on people to educate us and help us. How do, how do you navigate this kind of thing? Is there a time when a a white person is like, I should go get some help because you address that in your letter. And is there a good way to do that? First and foremost, me personally, the reason why, I'm so willing to engage in dialogue with people and like help them understand is because this is how I fight. Mm-hmm. Like everybody fights differently. You know, Cap took a knee. Mm-hmm. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. He marched. Uh, like you have people protesting. You have people who are just like, you know, I'm going to get into politics, do what I need to do. This is how I fight. And I am all for it as long as you're speaking to me, trying to gain understanding. I'm not going to be perfect. I never claim to be. But as long as we're speaking for understanding or engaging in dialogue for understanding, mm-hmm. I th- this is something I'm passionate about. And I've only learned, I didn't realize how passionate about it I was until the post. Mm-hmm. Like, this, this is giving me life. It's wow. like set a whole lot of things into yeah. perspective for me as far as like the next chapter of my life is concerned. As far as approaching Black educators, composers, arrangers, um, I don't want to say this. <laughs> say it however uh, I need to hear it. <laughs> uh, so what people fail to realize is cultural appropriation is basically when you don't give honor where it's due as long as you give honor where it's due you're good and it can be something as small as you teaching your kids about the history behind the negro spirituals in your classroom um and of course 
make sure you teach it appropriately for each grade level um, because of their emotional IQ. Um, when you're having these conversations, say, look, I, I am in my classroom. I have black babies. I have white babies. I, I have babies in my classroom and they deserve to learn the history of black music correctly. Mm. I don't know how to do that. I was not equipped with those resources. Do you mind sitting down with me and we just talk about this over lunch to see how I can implement this in my classroom? Do you have any resources you can point me in the direction of? And you'll like, People like myself, you'll be shocked at like how many black people are like yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. If and like on a smaller scale, if you're wanting to just have a conversation with them, take them out to lunch, pay pay for their lunch, right. do whatever. It's just as if I were asking for a consultation for a business proposal. Sure, it's, it's the same thing. Yeah. Um, hire clinicians, arrangers, and composers, and um and pay them for what they're worth yeah and get people like myself and other clinicians to come speak on podcasts web webinars and compensate them um and you know how do i want to say this you'll you have people like me who are willing to do all of this and have this conversation there there are more people out there like me but in all honesty like if you do come across, I don't know anybody personally who would feel like this, but if you do come across somebody who's just tired, sure. If you come across somebody who's tired, respect their space. And here's why, like, I feel like I know for certain that there are silos within the black community that are working to pull together some of these resources. Um, and you're going to end up having to pay for some of those right. resources. And you should. And I, and you should. And I don't blame them. And some of some of these people have felt like micro microaggressions towards them from white people for so long that they've just, you know what, I'm just going to stick to my community, stick to my silos. Mm -hmm. So, like, don't be shocked if people, black people in particular, start treating you like ancestry DNA. Mm -hmm. um, and when I say that. Basically, we were stolen from Africa, put here to work, and now we have to pay in order to figure out where you stole us from. Right. It's like, and now could you and, please research how we did this to yes. you and do it for free and do it quickly? Right. And it's, it's about to be the same. Well, some people, it's going to be, you stole our music, we're stealing it back. We're going to make you do the work to do the research. And if you want us to give you those resources, if you want us to speak at your conferences and clinics, you're going to have to pay. Yeah. I mean, which is, it's ridiculous that you would, it would just be like me when I go to teach a teacher training um, certif certification course and just being like, oh, I just, you know, do this for free because I love teaching, which is true, mm -hmm. you know. But I think this just has to become normalized, you know, that we have to do it. And I am slowly learning that um, people, every person deserves to be paid their due. Mm -hmm. But yeah, just uh, compensate people from the, for their time. Okay. And just, yeah. All right. 
fair enough. And that's and that's the kind of boots on the ground stuff we need to know. You know, it's like mm -hmm. how can we want to make a difference? And I want to read something uh, from your letter, and I I just if there's any reaction you have to it, hearing it again. Uh, you said, Dear White Coral Directors, first and foremost, if you or the majority of the students within your program have a problem with Black Lives Matter or you are subconsciously and in some cases outright racist, the fact that you program Negro spirituals, African music, gospel songs and other black literature a majority of the time as the grand finale, insert eye roll here, mm -hmm. in your concert infuriates me. How dare you take our music and use it for the sake of glitz and glamour and to claim you teach a quote-unquote variety of music within your classroom when you don't even respect the history of it or its people. When I read that to you, what comes to your mind again? I get furious. Um, when I was preparing for this interview, um, I, I was really looking for an example of a white person who created, arranged, and performed Black music with authenticity. And it was beautiful. And you know, the one of the first people that came to mind was George Gershwin. Mm. Because he did Porgy and Bess, he did Rhapsody Blue, and it was just amazing. And oh my gosh. Mm. And you know, I'm from Charleston, South Carolina, so Porgy and Bess is a staple in our community. Mm -hmm. We learned about it in elementary school, um, and I was like, oh, this music's kind of cool. And I was going to use him as that example of somebody who's white, did the research, and had a Black cast, and he did it with authenticity. He didn't use Blackface at all. He gave singers a... a a platform and help catapult some of the mm. careers and whatnot. Yes, you know, he had um, he had a, a drunkard and a beggared. Uh, it's been a minute since I've seen Porky yeah, and Bess. But, but, you know, it, it's a storyline. And I don't care for that part because I'm just like, oh, you're perpetuating a stereotype. Right. But, you know, uh, white people, they got trifling storylines too. Oh, like, yes. <laughs> yes, we yeah, have. Like we sure do. Uh, what is two men uh, pretending to be other men to see if they catch their wives right, cheating? Right, sure. <laughs> <laughs> we have issues. <laughs> yeah, cozy punch like. Oh like, yeah, the it, the it, opera opera story. Yeah, like yeah. my kids are always like, "This is insane." <laughs> when we like talk about opera storylines, it's like yeah, yeah. like opera opera's a lit, <laughs> but. <laughs> Uh, you know, I was like, yeah, he's going to be my example. And I felt like the Lord hit me on my shoulders like, mm. oh, boy, before you, yes. <laughs> before you use him as an example, um, you might want to look up some research. So I'm looking, I'm looking, I know, I'm looking. I can't I find know where anything this is going. on him. And I'm just like, all right. So I hit up some people and I came across one girl and I was just I told her about this interview. And. I was like, yo, is George Gershwin racist? I need to know these right. things before I use him as an example and go on this podcast and embarrass myself. She said, you know, you you wouldn't embarrass yourself because I had that same thought process. Mm -hmm. And I, I she's working on her thesis, uh her thesis, and it's basically and she went in with this whole thing, yet yeah, like, yeah, you can be white and you can um 
look in or like sing our music with authenticity and whatnot. Like basically like thanking George Gershwin and like making him look like this great person. But the more and more she dug, it just got dark. Like there are one of the things that she wrote in her paper, she generously gave uh, me a copy. She said, George Gershwin occasionally voiced his intentions of writing an opera for African-American singers I shall certainly write an opera and I shall write it for niggers. Oh, hey, that's... Yeah. Blacks sing beautifully. They are always singing and they have it in their blood. They have jazz in their blood too. I have no doubt that they would be able to do it justice. And she was talking to me and she would talk about how she would call or how Gershwin would call his cast members niggers. Hmm. Um, and how she, how they, um, how after they performed that body of work, people like Todd Duncan, who went out to get other roles within the opera world or in the music world, um, he started being typecast. Mm. Um, and then on top of that, like I brush past the fact that there's drunks and beggars, but you basically perpetuating all the stereotypes of black people during that time, like they're drunks, they're beggars, right. they're poor people, they're all these different stereotypes. And the two, the only two authority figures that you have in that folk opera are two white police officers. I was just going to say, <laughs> I never thought right. about it like that. You see? And it's just like, when she was telling me all of this stuff, it felt like she told me Santa Claus is it real. Right, right, right. She told me. Chick-fil-A had bad customer <laughs> service. Like, it, You're I like, was pissed. Right. Oh. I was pissed. But at the same time, I was just like, and we talked about this too. I was just like, you know, George may get a pass. <laughs> Only because of the time period right. in which this was done. This was like 1935 when it first premiered, I believe. Mm-hmm. So it's 85 years ago. My math may be terrible, but you know. Oh, no, please. It, it was 85 years ago. You have to keep in mind that George Gershwin, he comes from a family of Russian immigrants. He was born up north in New York, I believe. Um, and at that time, you know, the Black people around him, they were trying to, the free Blacks, they were trying to mold or melt into the culture of white people. They they weren't as loud, as boisterous, as color, as, as colorful as black people in the South. So when George came down to the South and he saw this dancing right. and singing and the vibrant colors and just black people in their element, he was just like, wow, mm. wow. I, I have to like learn more about this culture. And, you know, he was calling them the N word and he basically long story short, like, George didn't really understand that the black people up north were semi-human. The black people down here were still considered property. Mm-hmm. So he 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 may not have known. Like you know what? Maybe I should not. It, it should not call them niggers. Like maybe mm-hmm. I, I don't think he reflected in that manner. Sure, but few people today, did at the time. Yeah, yeah, it's a whole different. Yeah, thing. but today. Like, y'all, it is 2020. There is absolutely no reason you don't know better. So when you say things like all lives matter and 
you you're saying that to basically silence black people right. when you don't believe that there's privilege to your whiteness when you're basically low-key or high-key racist but you're performing our music yeah. for Ugh. glitz and glamour and to say oh here's the finale or this is fun and this is like we show a diverse a diverse work of music within our choir first and foremost what about a spiritual is fun <laughs> like jesse williams he said it best and he he went off at the bet awards he just i remember it <laughs> yeah. oh my gosh it was beautiful i was just like oh yes jesse <laughs> go for it he was basically saying you know what about black pain is fun to you <laughs> from where is that derived from millions of you smile in awe of our music, comedy, inventions, athletics, fashions, etc. But when we're not entertaining you, you hate us. How does that work exactly? Basically what, what I was saying in the letter, you love us for our culture, but you don't love us. And that to me is a problem. Mm. What about my ancestors being lynched, stolen from their homelands, families divided? Mm. What about that is fun? What about it is fun? So uh, that's why it infuriates me when you have these low-key racist teachers or teachers who don't even know because at at this point, you're too grown not to know. And I I don't blame you necessarily. I, I blame the people who came before you and the people who wrote on your clean slate when we are children we are all we all come with a clean slate and as we grow older things in life words in life they are etched onto our clean slates and permanent marker now if you reach a child quick enough you will be able to get some rubbing alcohol and take that permanent ink off but the longer that bad boy stays on there, the longer you are embedded and indulged in your mm. racist ways, it is harder for you to turn that around. It is so much easier for you to love at a younger age, learn to love and build discernment later than it is for you to grow up with so much hate in your heart. And by the time you realize what's going on, you realize that you have this much hate in your heart. Now you have to learn how to love and understand and listen. That is 10 times harder. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that that's why it infuriates me so much because I, I take it personally when you love our culture, you love when we're dancing, you love when we're singing our songs, but you deep down deep down inside you don't give two hot ham sandwiches about us right you cross the street when you see us coming down the street you clench your purse you yeah. call the police call the police and you know exactly what you're doing mm. when you call the police <sighs> you know that once that call is made we may not make it out alive that's a problem yeah. but i'm not going to get into politics <laughs> <laughs> so i'm not so, a politician so you Lord. could be look at you girl we <laughs> So when you think when you're thinking about that and you're thinking about a white 
music teacher who wants to do things the right way, what what um, process do you recommend? Or should they just not? Should they just not say, like to say they, I do want to program a spiritual. Should I not do it? Or what are some good steps toward doing it? So don't be the teacher that only teaches the spiritual for the finale. Don't be the teacher mm-hmm. that um, only teaches Black music during Black History Month because our history is 365, yep. not just confined to a month or a day. Like teach it year round, um, program it throughout your concerts. And when you're approaching this music, take the AAA battery approach. Approach. I, I call them the AAA battery crew because they give me life mm. and they give other people life, especially when you meet them. Um, Anton Armstrong, Dr. Anton Armstrong from St. Olaf, um, Dr. Jeffrey Ames from Belmont University, and Dr. Andre Thomas. Hmm. So Dr. Anton Armstrong, someone was engaging in dialogue with me on the post, and they were like, you know, Anton, or Dr. Armstrong, forgive me. <laughs> Your name is, wait, <laughs> sorry. Um, but Dr. Anton Armstrong, uh, he was teaching a piece, and I'm guessing it was like a spiritual or a concert gospel song. And like the kids were really timid and didn't want to sing out. And I, I guess the way that it was worded, it was because it's a black man, and nine times out of ten with these all state choirs, it's a bunch of white kids. In front right, of them. right. And he stopped them and looked at them and was like, What are y'all doing? Sing with your best voice. <laughs> it's not rocket science, it's not just sing with your best voice. So one, always make sure your kids are singing with their best voice and teach them that vocal flexibility. Um, It's nothing more than you just reworking um, the mechanics and teaching them where to place the sound. So think Stefan and Urkel from Family Matters. (laughs) I love that you're using this as the object lesson. I love it. (laughs) So think Stefan and Urkel. So when you... um, so for those of you who are young and wasn't, <laughs> you were robbed of a childhood. <laughs> you have missed out on a great stroke of culture. Right, right, because that was a great show. <laughs> but um, so Urkel is this nerd who walks around and he's in love with Laura and he's always making mistakes. And when he would make a mistake, you're like, "Did I do it?" <laughs> and we do that he, all the time in my house. Did I do yeah. that? <laughs> And then you have Stefan. Urkel, he was trying to impress Laura, but Laura, because of the way Urkel looked, wouldn't give him the time of day. Mm. So he would hop into this machine that he created, come out, and he was fine. <laughs> yes, Lord, he was fine. Um, and he would be Stefan. So um, your choral sound. Never could have made it. Never would have made it without you. If you think, and you find that balance between your Stefan and Urkel, never could have made it. Never could have made it without you. 
It's something simple as that. Just think more focal pad instead of you trying to sound black. Right. (laughs) And like, what does that mean? Right. Um, Then you have Dr. Uh, Jeffrey Ames. I studied with him at Belmont. And he, his school of thought was he would program a wide variety of music. Whenever he would rehearse with us, his thing was each song is supposed to sound different. Hmm. You're, you're not going to approach your Renaissance song the same way you would a Negro spiritual. Your Renaissance is going to have a, a straighter Straight tone, tone yeah. crisper consonants. Your Negro spiritual is going to have a slightly darker tone your Stefan side, um, you're going to have a slightly darker tone and you're going to um, have way more relaxed consonants. <laughs> and you're going to switch over from saying things like the, to saying duh. And there's a whole history behind that. Yeah. Um, Even that one little then, thing, there's so much to learn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then um, you also have... Dr. Andre Thomas, and he says, and I quote, just moving this over, it is not enough to simply know the music. One must know the culture of the folk music as well as the history of its people. But most importantly, the music must be sung with respect to that culture. And he wrote that in Way Over in Beulah Land. So long story mm-hmm. short, white people, uh, don't overthink shit. Uh, <laughs> just take from those three beautiful batteries. Triple A battery. Yep. Anton, Ames, and Andre, and go from there. So like, you mean like and, get their books, do their... Yeah. Like all the stuff, like Dr. Anton Armstrong, I'm pretty sure he's still doing all states and different clinics mm-hmm. and whatnot. Uh, Dr. Ames, he he goes on what feels like a world tour every summer. <laughs> and like he just does clinics, whether they're in the country or out of the country. Right. Like he does these clinics teaching about concert gospel music mm. um, and where it came from, how it was implemented in the classroom and whatnot. And then Dr. Andre Thomas, I, I was confused because he was at Florida State. He retired. Then he moved to California. So are there books that we can get? How can um, white music educators get to this information um, so we can learn more from these experts? You know, I'm not even going to lie to you. So, uh, of course, I can read, like like I said, I graduated with a 4.25 <laughs> high school. But because I have ADD and it, it's hard for me, especially because... I feel like when I'm reading stuff like this, I feel like I'm in a sense studying. It's it captures mm. my attention, but it feels like I'm studying in a sense. Sure. Um, so I am I learn best by kind of reading out loud sometimes, but I learn best by watching videos with captions. Okay. Um it, I know it's weird, but rock no. for a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, that's not weird. It's just yeah. everybody has a different style. Yeah. So I, I listen to like interviews. I listen to teachings. I go to clinics and whatnot. Um, with Dr. Andre Thomas, I know for certain that he has his book way over in Beulah Land. Um, Dr. Jeffrey Ames, he uh, he does clinics and he still does like all states and regional choirs and whatnot. So just sit in on their rehearsals and listen to them. And by all means, go to his clinics whenever he he's presenting 
Okay. Um, and then Dr. Anton or Anton Armstrong, my apologies. Anton Armstrong. That's hard to say. Can we just <sighs> put that there? All Anton the Armstrong. Anton just... Armstrong. Anton Armstrong. Anton Armstrong. Doctor. <laughs> I get ca- I I get called Doctor Armstrong a lot. So because people yes. are like strong. Oh, Armstrong. Okay. Yeah. So, so. alliteration is <laughs> Sorry. kind of a tongue twister. <laughs> um, but yeah, he he still does all states, and he teaches at Saint Olaf. So I'm pretty sure he has some works there. But me, I'm just an interview. Um, look at videos with captions gap. That's yeah, just, sure. that's how I learn best personally. So okay, so um, and I think you said in well, I know you said. I'm just not saying it exactly. Go to these um, sessions at a conference where maybe before you wouldn't have gone to them, because I know that there's been times when I've been. Uh, at a state conference or a national conference and thought like, oh, I don't really, you know, want to go to that one because it's about Negro spirituals. And I don't know that I need to know that much about that, mm-hmm. which is bad on me. And now I want to go because I want to learn. Um, and so there are ways for people to learn. Yeah. And I uh, I actually saw or met Dr. Thomas at a South Carolina Music Educators Association conference. And he did a couple of workshops and he talked about keep your lamps and Mm -hmm. how you can um, bring that imagery to your choir in the classroom and get the sound that you need out of it. It's things like that, that people don't really think about when they go to these conferences. Like, and that's for all workshops in all honesty because i've seen people go to these conferences that they either pay for or these districts pay for and they just spend all their time at the bar I'm like what are yes. you doing <laughs> hey stop calling me out right now i, I don't appreciate that <laughs> my apologies <laughs> wait you mean there's something else going on at the conference yes, i thought it was is. all state concerts and hang out at the bar oh yes yes please and go and go to chili's to um have lunch California dreaming. Uh, <laughs> shout out to my SBA crew. Uh, but yeah, like I, I make it a point to go to these conferences and go and get the things. I like. There was one point, like I said, I'm not an expert at black music. I, I think where my strength lies is that I'm not afraid to ask questions. Hmm. So um, there was one guy in particular at a national conference that. He, and he talked about how to implement jazz music into the choral classroom. And he dropped some gems and he was white. Mm-hmm. He was white. So like, go, go where you need to get the information. Yeah. And, and I think just, just start learning. That's kind of my thing is like, yeah. I was worried for the longest time. Like, I don't want to do the wrong kind of learning. I don't want to. And I think, you know, there's merit to that. You don't want to pick up a terrible book you know Mm -hmm. but just start learning go where you can go so you're so you're not advising in your opinion like white people should not be doing this which is what you said earlier yeah you know don't don't not do spirituals but um do them with understanding Mm -hmm. go to the experts Mm -hmm. um don't program them as some uh, extra, you know, uh, glitzy, fun, fun thing, mm-hmm. quote unquote. Do it with 
nuance and understanding and teach your students, which is going to impact their sound because right. it's going to impact what we call the artful part of uh, the musician, which is mm -hmm. I'm connecting with this music. Once again, I am so grateful that Jasmine was willing to offer up concrete ideas for non-Black music teachers to approach Black music in their programs. I love that she introduced me to the AAA battery crew of amazing conductors. And when I got to hear her sing, even just for a moment, it gave me goosebumps. So I'm thankful for that as well. I'm thankful that you joined me. And I hope that you will join us next time for the last episode in the series. I'm excited for you to hear it. And I hope that you are learning along with me, as of course, we all work towards creating a more tuneful, beatful, and artful world. <laughs>